everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bradley Lectures podcast. I'm Tal Fortgang. Today, we bring you a lecture from a relentless champion for freedom of speech, conscience, and association, Professor Alan Kors of the University of Pennsylvania, who in the years following this lecture went on to found the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, also known as FIRE. What prompted this lecture, the founding of FIRE, and the book that Kors would later write with his FIRE co-founder Harvey Silverglate, which was called The Shadow University, was not the lopsidedness of college curricula. It's true, Kors notes, those curricula were quite one-sided, but could be dealt with the way universities have always dealt with dogma and orthodoxy, by challenging the dominant views in the marketplace of ideas with arguments and debate. Now, the real problem on America's campus, according to Kors, was what he called the betrayal of liberty, the draconian codes of conduct that crept into the academic world by way of labor law and a vast university bureaucracy and held immense power to punish students for speaking or laughing or gesturing or otherwise behaving in ways that could be considered offensive to anyone. It was positively Soviet, argued Kors, and it ought to go the way of the Soviet Union too. Now, Kors' provocative and impassioned lecture raises some fundamental questions about rights, power, and political correctness. Does anyone have a right to be free from offense? In a campus culture obsessed with power, who really has power and authority? And does political correctness mean anything other than acting with decency? Kors is unafraid to take a side and demonstrate his points with ample evidence from college speech codes and other policies. Before we jump into the lecture, I'd like to encourage all our listeners to like and subscribe to the Bradley Lectures podcast if you haven't yet. Leave us a kind review if you're so inclined. We think that Professor Kors would appreciate you supporting this effort to let speech and ideas flourish. And with that, here's Professor Alan Kors in October of 1998 on the betrayal of liberty on America's campuses. without coercive power is not the direct enemy of liberty. Rather, those things that threaten free and open debate and those things that threaten academic liberty are the direct enemy of our freedom. Such threats exist most dangerously at universities, not in curriculum and scholarship but in the new university in loco parentis, the university standing in the place of parents, where our nation's colleges and universities across the board are teaching contempt for liberty and its components, freedom of expression and inquiry, individual rights and responsibilities over group rights and entitlements, equal justice under law, and the rights of private conscience. And that assault upon liberty is not occurring in the sunlight of open decisions and advertised agendas, but in the shadows of an unaccountable middle administration that has been given cynically coercive authority over the lives, speech, consciences, and voluntary individuation and associations of students. Almost all colleges and universities, for example, 
have, I'll save time by doing this, harassment policies that prohibit verbal behavior or verbal conduct, but almost none has the honesty to call these for what they are, speech codes. These policies adopted from employment law and catastrophic for universities are applied to faculty and students, the latter not even being employees of a university, but in fact, ironically, their clients. The core of these codes is the prohibition of the creation of, quote, a hostile or offensive environment, end quote, with all the remarkable variations and embellishments that follow from Hobbes's observation that to the learned it is given to be learnedly foolish. Within very recent times, Bowdoin College chose to outlaw jokes and ways of telling stories experienced by others as harassing. Brown University banned verbal behavior that produced, quote, feelings of impotence, anger, or disenfranchisement, whether intentional or unintentional. Colby College prohibited speech that caused loss of self-esteem. The University of Connecticut prohibited, quote, inconsiderate jokes, stereotyping, and inappropriately directed laughter, close quote. Indeed, in a case in which I was involved, a student at Sarah Lawrence College recently was convicted of laughing at something that someone else said and was ordered as a condition of remaining at the college for his laughter to read a book entitled Homophobia on Campus, to see the film Homophobia, and to write a paper about homophobia. Rutgers University included within the forbidden and quote, heinous act, end quote, of harassment, quote, communication that is in any manner likely to cause annoyance or alarm, end quote, which causes me a great deal of both annoyance and alarm. One laughs, the penalties for these offenses are termination, expulsion, or remediation. Expression goes well beyond the verbal, however, because the University of Maryland also prohibits, and I quote directly from their code, quote, gestures that are expressive of an idea, opinion, or emotion, including sexual looks, such as leering and ogling with suggestive overtones, licking lips or teeth, holding or eating food provocatively. Many universities, such as Berkeley itself, no less, 
have adopted speech codes that outlaw fighting words. That term is taken from the U.S. Supreme Court decision of the 1940s, Chaplinsky v. New Hampshire, a decision that does seem mooted by later Supreme Court decisions, in which campus leftists should take note the unprotected fighting word was, of all things, fascist. Many universities also leave the determination of whether something was a fighting word or created a hostile environment to the plaintiff. Thus, the University of Puget Sound states that verbal harassment, quote, depends on the point of view of the person to whom the conduct is unwelcome, end quote. The City University of New York warns that, quote, sexual harassment is not defined by intentions, but by its impact on the subject, close quote. At the University of Connecticut, criticizing someone's limits of tolerance toward the speech of others is itself harassment. Its code explicitly bans, quote, attributing objections to any of the above instances of harassment to hypersensitivity of the targeted individual or group. If applied equally, of course, such a policy would leave no sex or race safe in its conversations or humor, let alone in its artistic taste. But such policies never are applied equally. Thus, students at West Virginia University receive the official policies of, this is the name of the office, the Executive Officer for Social Justice, who reports directly to the President. <clears throat> the Officer for Social Justice stated the institutional orthodoxy about homophobia and sexism. The Officer of Social Justice warned that feelings about gays and lesbians could not become, quote, attitudes. Full quotation. Regardless of how a person feels about others, negative actions or attitudes based on misconceptions and or ignorance constitute prejudice which contradicts everything for which an institution of higher learning stands. End quote. Among those prejudices, it listed, quote, heterosexism, the assumption that everyone is heterosexual, or if they aren't, they should be, close quote. This, of course, outlawed specific religious inner convictions about sexuality. Because everyone had the right to be free from harassment, the policy also specified explicit, quote, behaviors to avoid. These prohibitions affected speech and voluntary associations based upon beliefs. Thus, quote, do not 
tolerate jokes which are potentially injurious to gays, lesbians, and bisexuals. Do not determine whether you will interact with someone by virtue of his or her sexual orientation." Close quote. The policy also commanded specific prescriptions. Quote, value alternate lifestyles, challenge homophobic remarks, and use language that is not gender-specific. Instead of referring to anyone's romantic partner as girlfriend or boyfriend, use positive generic terms such as friend, lover, or partner. Speak of your own romantic partner similarly. Close quote. The homophobia policy concluded with the warning that harassment or discrimination based on sexual preference was subject to penalties that ranged, quote, from reprimand to expulsion and termination and including public service and educational remediation, close quote. Educational remediation, note well, is an academic euphemism for thought reform. Made aware of what their own university was doing, a coalition of faculty members threatened to expose West Virginia for its obvious violations of the state and federal constitutions and to sue the administration if need be. As I talk, the university has removed the offending codes from its freshman orientation packages and from its website. We do not know if it has removed them from its operational policies. When federal courts struck down two codes restricting verbal behavior at public universities and colleges, namely at the University of Michigan and the University of Wisconsin, and it takes courage as a student and funds and risk um, to litigate against your own university. Other public colleges and universities, even in those jurisdictions where codes had been declared unconstitutional, did not seek to abolish their policies. Thus, Central Michigan University, after the University of Michigan's code had been struck down, maintained a policy whose prohibitions included, quote, any intentional, unintentional, physical, verbal, or nonverbal behavior that subjects an individual to an intimidating, hostile, or offensive educational environment by demeaning or slurring individuals through written literature because of their racial or ethnic affiliation or, or using symbols and I kid you not, this is the way the policy reads, using symbols, epitaphs, they did mean epithets, or slogans that infer, they did mean imply, negative connotations about an individual's racial or ethnic affiliation, end quote. 
In the mid-1990s, this policy was challenged successfully in federal district court. The court noted that the code applied to, quote, all possible human conduct, end quote. And citing internal university documents, quoting from them, ruled that Central Michigan intended to apply it to speech, and here they quote from the university's internal documents, which a person feels has affronted either him or some group predicated on race or ethnicity, close quote. The court ruled that if the policy's words had real meaning, it banned precisely protected speech. If someone's treatise, term paper, or even in the judge's phrase, cafeteria bull session about the Middle East, close quote, blamed one group more than another on the basis of, in the court's words, some ancient ethnic traditions which give rise to barbarian combativeness or inability to compromise, such speech would seem a good fit with the policy's language, close quote. In fact, the court ruled, quote, any behavior, even unintentional, that offends any individual is to be prohibited under the policy. If the speech gives offense, it is prohibited, end quote. When the president of Central Michigan University offered assurances to the court that the policy was not intended to be enforced in such a way as to interfere impermissibly with individuals' rights to free speech, the court declared itself emphatically unimpressed by such a savings clause. And it saw to the heart of what the, what the code was all about and who would enforce it. Quote, the university says, in essence, trust us. We may interfere, but not impermissibly. This court is not willing to entrust the First Amendment to the tender mercies of this institution's discriminatory harassment or affirmative action officer, close quote. Many in the academy insist that the entire phenomenon labeled political correctness is the mythical fabrication of opponents of progressive change. The authors of an American Association of University Professors special committee report, the Statement on the Political Correctness Controversy of 1991, insisted without irony that claims of political correctness were merely smoke screens to hide the true agenda of such critics, a racist and sexist desire to thwart the aspirations of minorities and women in the academic enterprise. It is, in fact, almost inconceivable that anyone of good faith could live on a college campus unaware of the repression, legal inequality, intrusions into private conscience, and malignant double standards that hold sway there. 
In the left's history of McCarthyism, the firing or dismissal of one professor or student, the inquisition into the private beliefs of one individual, let alone the demands for a demonstration of fealty to community standards, stand out as intolerable oppressions that coerced people for a decade into silence, hypocrisy, betrayal, and tyranny. In fact, in today's assault on liberty on college campuses, there is not a small number of cases, speech codes, nor apparatuses of repression and thought reform. Number aside, however, a climate of repression succeeds not by statistical frequency, though that is great, but by sapping the courage, autonomy, and conscience of individuals who otherwise might remember or revive what liberty could be. At almost every college and university, Students deem members of historically oppressed groups, above all women, blacks, gays, and Hispanics, are informed during orientations that their campuses are teeming with illegal and intolerable violations of their right not to be offended. To believe most new student orientations would be to believe that there was a racial or sexual bigot to borrow the mocking phrase of McCarthy's critic, critics under every bed. At almost every college and university, students are presented with lists of a vast array of places to which they should submit charges of such verbal harassment, and they are promised victim support confidentiality and sympathetic understanding when they file such complaints. What an astonishing expectation to give to students the belief that if they belong to a protected category and have the correct beliefs, they have a right to four years of never being offended. What an extraordinary power to give to administrative tribunals the prerogative to punish the free speech and expression of people to whom they assign the stains of historical oppression while they themselves remain free to use whatever rhetoric they choose against the bearers of such stains. Those settlements almost invariably involve sensitivity training, an appalling term, training to hear in matters of the human mind and spirit. Even so, files on prosecutions under speech codes are, alas, overflowing. Settlements, by the way, are one of the best-kept and most frightening secrets of American academic life, almost always assigned with an insistence upon confidentiality. They are nothing less than an American version of thought reform from benighted offender into a politically correct bearer 
in fact or coerced appearance of an ideology that is the renient orthodoxy of our universities in loco parentis. From this perspective, American history is a tale of the oppression of all others by white, heterosexual, Eurocentric males punctuated by the struggles of the oppressed. Beneficiaries see their lives as good and as natural and falsely view America as a boon to humankind. Worse, most victims of oppression accept the values of their oppressors. A central task of education then in such a view is to demystify such arbitrary power. Whites, males, and heterosexuals must recognize and renounce the injustice of their privilege. Non-whites, women, gays, and lesbians must recognize and struggle against their victimization, both in their beliefs and in their behaviors. Such demystification has found a welcome home in a large number of courses in the humanities and social sciences. But for the true believers, this is insufficient because most courses remain optional. Many professors resist the temptation to proselytize and students for the most part choose majors that take them far from the study of oppression. Indeed, students forever disappoint the ideologues. Men and women far from seeing each other as oppressor and oppressed and far from engaging in class warfare often love each other and write each other poems. Most women refuse to identify themselves as feminists. Group identity centers, although they can rally support at moments of crisis, attract few students overall because invitees busily go about the business of learning, making friends, pursuing interests, and seeking love, the things that 18 to 22-year-olds have done from time immemorial. Attendance at group identity organizations is often minuscule as a percentage of the intended population and militant leaders complain endlessly about apathy. Whites don't feel particularly guilty about their birth, and almost no designated victims adopt truly radical politics. Most undergraduates unabashedly seek their portion of American freedom, legal equality, and bounty. What to do? with such benighted students? Increasingly, the answer to that question is to use the in loco, loco parentis apparatus of the university to reform their private consciences and minds. For the generation that once said, don't trust anyone over 30, the motto now is don't trust anyone under 30. And offices of student life, residence offices, and residence advisors have become 
agencies of progressive social engineering whose mission is to bring students to mandatory political enlightenment. Examine, for example, a plea bargain rejected by a student at the University of Pennsylvania in April of 1992, who took his chances with the ordeal of a hearing where he was acquitted of charges of sexual harassment. It took courage to take that chance when accepting a plea bargain would have ended the matter. The proposed settlement is typical of what occurs at so many of our universities, and now you will know what is meant by educational, not punitive settlements when universities speak of them. And it was equally chilling in its command over time and private conscience and in its authoritarian and partisan supervision. An attorney of the Office of General Counsel confirmed to me that he had signed off on scores of identical settlements, and they are systemic throughout our nation's campus judicial systems. Quote, you are to participate in a comprehensive program on sexual harassment except for the time you are attending classes or at employment. Said programming shall include assignments each week in which classes are in session throughout the spring 1992 term. You must present written evidence of completion of assignments and a satisfactory performance must be documented by Elena Delapi, director of the Women's Center, before your transcript can be released." End quote. From the Inquisition to Soviet psychiatry, history has taught us the nightmare of violating the ultimate refuges of self-consciousness, conscience, and private beliefs. It begins these days with orientation itself, often and increasingly. Orientations include separate so-called minority orientations in which individual students identified as black, Hispanic, or Asian American are given special advisors, introduced to partisan group identity centers, and welcomed not as individuals into the world of learning, but two generations after the Nuremberg race laws as the embodiment of blood equated with culture. General orientations increasingly reflect politicized networking and common sources. Thus, one of the most popular sources for our nation's directors of student orientation was a handout widely shared by a proud University of Michigan whose goal was to give students, quote, a common vocabulary about diversity, end quote. This included a loaded set of definitions. Some were merely political, quote, people of color, a term of solidarity 
referring to the world's majority of Asians, Blacks, Latinos, Native Americans, and Pacific Islanders, the term minority obscures this global reality and in effect reinforces racist assumptions. End quote, and welcome to the University of Michigan. Some were not only political, but were also patronizing and intrusive, and these this very phrase exists in orientation programs at scores and scores of our universities, quote, internalized oppression and psychological captivity, states of mind in which subordinated individuals accept stereotypes and myths of themselves that are perpetuated by the dominant society. Close quote. Some slipped in the crucial sociological notion of current thought reform, namely that absent his or her group's domination of institutions, no individual could be a racist or sexist. Thus, racism and sexism were respectively, quote, racial prejudice and sexual prejudice with institutional power, close quote. Some offered wholly new isms for most students, quote, heterosexism, attitudes, actions, or institutional practices which subordinate individuals whose sexual orientation is not heterosexual, end quote. These are not definitions, of course, but political, sociological, moral, and ideological claims always fit for intensive study and debate, but never fit for mandatory indoctrination. The most revealing definition, however, was, quote, culture, because that was the unit of diversity. Quote, as Antonio Gramsci, the Italian communist theorist. As Antonio Gramsci has observed, culture can be hegemonic, an order in which a certain way of life and thought is dominant, close quote. That, of course, was not a celebration of all cultures. The real goal of diversity education in freshman orientation before a single class was held or a single book read was the devaluation of the so-called dominant singular culture. There are core beliefs of current academic thought reform an individual is not an autonomous moral being, but a member of a racial and historical group that possesses moral debt or credit. There is only one appropriate set of views about race, gender, sexuality, and culture, and holding an inappropriate belief once truth has been offered is not an intellectual disagreement, but an act of denial or oppression. All behavior and thought are political, including opposition to politicized awareness workshops. The goal of such opposition, correctly understood, is the continued oppression of women and of racial and sexual minorities. 
To teach a new creed indeed requires a new vocabulary. In the 1990s, the Office of Student Affairs at Smith College gave every freshman a guide to identity and oppression. Oppression was, quote, discrimination on the basis of certain stereotypes, generalizations, and attributes, conscious or unconscious, by possessors of institutional power, close quote. It did not occur to Smith's Office of Student Affairs that at Smith, it was the embodiment of institutional power. Thank you for listening to the Bradley Lectures podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. The Bradley Lectures were given for more than a quarter century at AEI thanks to the generous sponsorship of the Lyndon and Harry Bradley Foundation. AEI senior fellow Carlin Bowman and I hope you enjoy our revival of these lectures. If you do, please show your support by giving us a like and a comment and subscribing to our channel. And stay tuned for new episodes every other Monday as we bring the wisdom of the recent past to the most pressing issues of the present. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time on the Bradley Lectures Podcast. Thank you.